Welcome, welcome, welcome to session number five, from the beginning to the end. That's the goal. We're going to go from Genesis to, Genesis to Revelation in 13 weeks at Warp Factor 10. And uh, some of you probably already noticed, if you see me, you say, what's wrong with his eye? So rather than having to say it 300 times, I was working yesterday evening and cutting some tree limbs and nothing hit me. I guess I got in a strain, busted a blood vessel in my eye. No, I'm not auditioning for a horror movie. <laughs> it just looks like that. It doesn't hurt. I can see fine. Went to the doctor. Everything's good. So uh, I figured I'd just say it and that way I don't want to say it a hundred times. So welcome tonight. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that shows us uh, the word and reveals the truth. Thank you that knowing the Word and knowing the truth is to know Jesus, for He is the Word. He is the Son. He is life itself. So tonight I ask you to open our minds to understand the Scriptures. So we go through these sessions, these 13 weeks. Lord, we're seeking you. We're not seeking some intellectual um, capability. We're seeking you. We're seeking after you to know the Father is to know the Son, to know the Son is to know the Word, and to have the Spirit revelation of the Word in our heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The King who had it all. Starting well is easy, but finishing well is a lifelong project that, quite frankly, many do not complete. David had his ups and downs, but David finished well. King David secured a place for his son Solomon in the genealogy of the Messiah. And let me tell you, that doesn't get much better than that. David had to fight and run and run and fight. Last, year, last week we talked about for 14 years, 14 years after he's anointed king until he takes the throne. And most of those 14 years, he's running from the king who's in position, King Saul. So David had to fight before he found his role as king, but not so with his son Solomon. Solomon inherited a peace and security that was achieved through the faithful obedience of his father David. David passes these words on to his son Solomon before he dies. Here we go. 1 Kings 2.1. When the time drew near for David to die, <clears throat> he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said, so be strong. Show yourself a man and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you, David, this is God's promise to David that he's, he's, he's revealing to Solomon, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. Now David has given his son a wonderful gift. Wisdom and good counsel. But will Solomon listen to the good counsel? Will any son listen to good counsel? There's some yeses, there's some noes. And will this new king, Solomon, desire wisdom? Well, 
he starts with a yes. He starts good. That's why tonight I said that there's one thing to begin the journey, but maybe the more important part is how you finish the journey. There's a lot of people that start well, but they finish poorly. So God appears to Solomon, and he offers him anything his heart desires. Now, before I read it, I just want you to ponder the thought personally, that if you had an encounter with God and he said, okay, tonight is this a one and done deal. Anything you want, I'll give it to you. What are you going to say? Wow, that'd be pressure. I'll give you anything you want, anything your heart desires. What would Solomon request? Because he's going to get that moment. God loved David so much that when Solomon succeeds him as king, he's going to offer him whatever you want. Now, as I read it, I want you to notice the context, because context is everything in this. Second Chronicles 1.6, Solomon went up to the bronze altar before the Lord in the tent of meeting. Where is he? He's in the tabernacle, okay? They haven't built the permanent temple building. So he's at the bronze altar at the tent of meeting, and he offered a thousand, a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. That night, so, so here's the context. These offerings, it's, it's an act of love, it's an act of worship. These offerings are worship, and he offers a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. That night, not coincidence, that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask for whatever you want me to give you. That, that offer to Solomon comes on the heels of him offering a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. God is obviously moved by Solomon's offering. Solomon answered God, you have shown great kindness to David, my father, and have made me, Solomon, king in his place. Now, Lord God, let your promise to my father David be confirmed, for you have made me king over a people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. What's that sound like? What's that sound like? That sounds like God's covenant to Abraham, right? Verse 10, give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people for who is able to govern this great people of yours. So a couple of things. I see Solomon, the son of David, a little overwhelmed at his new job. Who can govern these people? I can't even count them. Who can govern them? Lord, you've got to help me govern them. But I also see some humility in him. You know, it could, if you're raised under, uh, under the king, you know, you can become arrogant. How many times did that happen in the history of Israel? And yet he's, he's humble. He, he has great beginnings. He has great beginnings. Was that the right choice? Man, of all the things, so you ought to memorize this, by the way, in case God comes to you tonight and says, okay, here's the deal. <laughs> this worked really good for Solomon in the beginning. God, how will he respond to this request? Go to verse 11. God said to Solomon, since this is your heart's desire. What was it? Let's make sure we get it. Give me the ability to govern your people. Give me the ability to be a good king. These are your people. 
And would you put in me what I need to do this job that has come down to me? So since this is your heart's desire and you've not asked for wealth, you've not asked for riches or honor, and nor the death of your enemies, and since you have not asked for a long life, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern my people over whom I have made you king, therefore, oh man, this is the, the prize behind the other door. Therefore, wisdom and knowledge will be given to you, and I will also give you wealth. You didn't ask for it, but because you humbled yourself, I'll give you wealth, I'll give you riches, I'll give you honor such as no king who was ever before you ever had and none after you will ever have what I'm about to do to you, what I'm going to give you. Wisdom, wealth, riches, honor like no other king on earth ever, ever. Greater wisdom than that that came from the eastern countries. We're going to, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see examples of that. Greater wisdom than that that came out of Egypt. Understand something. Those Asian countries from the east and those uh, Egypt, they had way more history. They, they've been in countries, nations way longer than Israel. Um, and yet he's going to move the king and the kingdom above the ancient kingdoms of the east and of Egypt. He's going to move them above. They're going to surpass them. His wisdom, what God did to Solomon supernaturally, brought world leaders to Jerusalem to see if it's true. Is there really, is there really a kingdom in Jerusalem like everybody says? Is it, is it true? Here's some of the, the data if you do the search in, in the scriptures. Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs. 1,500, he wrote 1,500 songs. If you look in the Bible, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, not just wise words. Not, you know, a lot of people have wise words, but great deeds. He accomplished incredible tasks. 418 years after the Exodus, and in the fourth year of his reign, Everybody got the timeline? 418 years after the Exodus, after Moses leads them out of Egypt, and in the fourth year of Solomon's reign after David has turned over the kingdom, he began construction of the temple of God in Jerusalem. This is ultimately God's upper story plan now finally taking place in the lower story of the kingdoms of men. And listen to these numbers. It would take seven years and 180,000 men to complete the construction of building that would only measure, are you ready? It only measured 90 feet by 30 feet. 90 feet by 30 feet. And it took seven years and 180,000 men. How would you like to be in charge of that payroll? It is the place where the presence of God would dwell on the earth with man. And you can see that the task was huge. Um, 
And by the way, um, the Ark of the Covenant, and, and last week I told you that last week's Wednesday night took the scripture I was going to use for this last Sunday. It did it again tonight. And I wrote these in totally different time frames. Well, the same thing is happening again. Tonight's scripture dovetails with this Sunday's sermon. It's happening again. So you figure it out. 1 Kings 8 verse 1. Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families to bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion to the city of David. Now that building that took, what, seven years and 180,000 men, what's the centerpiece of the building? What's the, what's the point of the building? The ark of the covenant, the throne of God the presence of God in Jerusalem. So he summons these people to bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Zion, the city of David. They're going to move it from a tent into a permanent building. All the men of Israel came together to King Solomon at the time of the festival in the month of Ethanon, the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took the Ark and they brought up the Ark of the Lord at the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it, the priests and Levites carried them up the, and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that day that they could not be numbered or counted. Now, now I want you to get this. So there's an entourage, a parade kind of a thing going from the tent that David had put the ark of the covenant now to this newly built temple, permanent building. And, and Solomon is in front and all the, the Levites are there and they're sacrificing animals blood so much that it's not been able to be counted. Verse 6, the priest then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the, uh, over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place. And they are still there today when that was written. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with all the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the holy place... <clears throat> Do you think there was any expectancy? When they withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. What's the cloud? For the cloud of the Lord filled his temple. What's the cloud? His presence. Why is it in a cloud? Because if he didn't conceal himself with the cloud, you would surely die. No one could look upon his face and live. So let's go to verse 29. May your eyes, Solomon's prayer, may your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servants pray toward this place. 
Hear the supplications of your servants and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Daniel, in the exile, what did he get in trouble for doing? This verse. What did Daniel get? Why did they throw Daniel in the lion's den? Because they said, you can't pray. What was he doing? He bowed down and faced Jerusalem, and he prayed toward Jerusalem. Daniel's fulfilling Solomon's dedication prayer of the temple years later. Just, you didn't have to necessarily be in Jerusalem. Daniel's exiled. The, by the time Daniel comes on the scene, the Jerusalem temple's been destroyed. It was destroyed in 586 B.C. Daniel's after that. So the temple's gone, but you know what Daniel's doing? He's praying to where the temple was. Why? This prayer, this dedication. Let's go to verse 62. Then all the kings, excuse me, then the kings of all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. Solomon offered a sacrifice of fellowship offerings to the Lord. And you know what? Every time I read this, that's unimaginable. 22,000 cattle. 22,000 cattle, 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the Israelites dedicated the temple to the Lord. First off, just imagine the amount of blood. I cannot comprehend how much blood would be if you butchered that many animals. I have butchered a lot of animals myself as a, somebody who grew up on a farm. We killed our own beef. We killed deer. I mean, it's a lot of blood, and that's one animal. What is this like? What would it like to be a priest? What would it be like to be a priest? Do you think the priest, you, when you picture a priest in the Old Testament, you picture this big fancy robe and walking around all fancy. And, but what's he doing here? He's slaughtering so many animals that your mind can't comprehend it. And even when they were taking the ark from the tent to the, the temple, the newly built temple, what were they doing along the way? Kill an animal, kill an animal, kill an animal, kill an animal. Why? Why, why all the animal dying? Why? It's atonement. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And go back up there and look. Uh, nah, 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 nah. Go to that 1 Kings 8, 29. Go to the end of verse 30. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear what? What's the last word? Forgive. 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 Uh, how do you forgive? There's atonement. Now, don't miss the point. It's not about Solomon, but it's about God's plan to get us back. So that whole animal sacrifice and the temple and the ark, it's not about Solomon. It's about God in that scene is going to make a plan to get us back. That place, Jerusalem, was chosen by God himself. It was not chosen by Solomon or David. It is the place of Abraham's offering of his son Isaac. But even more important than that, and I'm always careful when I say this, it is not in the Bible. It is not in the Bible. Orthodox Judaism says that Mount Moriah, the place of Abraham offers his son Isaac, is the foundation stone 
I touched on it last week. The place that God made Adam, breathed into him the breath of life. Then he took Adam and placed him in the garden. I'm not going to argue with that. It sounds good to me. So the, the point is this. God's got this plan. That place is very specific. It's very specific. Okay, just from the foundation stone to Isaac being sacrificed as an offering, and then David's going to buy the threshing floor and stop the plague, and then Solomon builds the most holy place over the same stone in the same place. It's not coincidental. God, in that scene, is, is he's making this shadow of what he will eventually do to get mankind back. All of this is to get us back. It's the place that David purchased the threshing floor. It's the place that God has chosen as his own, his dwelling place, the place of his name. Remember, that's what it said. It's the place where Jesus will return. Ultimately, everything points to Jesus. That place is the place where Jesus will return from which, uh, and he's going to reign over the whole earth from that place. And I want you to understand, in Zechariah chapter 14, the last chapter of the Old Testament prophet Zechariah describes something that is still in our future. It's not just a prophecy, it's a prophecy still in front of us. We're still waiting on this. Here we go. On that day, the return of Christ. That's what the reference is. There will be no light, no cold or frost. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime. A day known only to the Lord. Are you with me? No, no day, no night. When evening comes, the sun won't go down. When evening comes, there will still be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea in summer and in winter. And the Lord will be the king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name is the only name. Now, you understand, his name's not recorded because when... Zechariah had that prophecy. His name was not given. It, didn't, it doesn't happen until much later. But already the, the scene is set. And where's the scene? On that day in Jerusalem. Let's go to 2 Chronicles 7:11. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace, and he had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. Now let's go to 16. Now, so this place, this place, this place is the same place. By the way, it says it's the same place. We're not guessing. It's not a subjection. It, it says specifically that David's threshing floor, Mount Moriah, Solomon's temple are all the same place. Verse 16, I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. 
The presence of God was their treasure, but this treasure came with conditions. This treasure came with a covenant. Now, this is, goes, kind of goes with my sermon this past week and, and coming up this next week. This, the treasure is his presence, but it comes with conditions, and the conditions are the covenant. It's the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark is the presence. The covenant is the law that allows you to experience the presence. Go to 19 and 20. But if you turn away and forsake the, deco- the covenant, I'm going to put the word covenant in it. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands, what decrees and what commands? The covenant. If you turn away and forsake the commands I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from this land. All the promises have a condition. I will uproot Israel from this land which I have given to them and will reject this temple. What? This temple that you all have built, that I have consecrated for my name, I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all the people. I will tear this place down. What what would make him tear it down? He did tear it down. What would make him tear it down? Idolatry and apostasy. Both. Solomon's wisdom and wealth didn't protect him from the idolatry and apostasy that came by his foreign wives. Let's go to chapter 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. He loved Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. He should have stayed away from the ites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and that was not porcupines, that's concubines. And his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. Now, I didn't put it in there, but I've always said the grand finale of his idolatry is on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, the place where Jesus will ascend and return to. He built an idol shrine on the very place that the Son of God will return to. Starting well is easy. Finishing well is a lifelong project that many do not complete. I think the Apostle Paul, as he faced the end of his life when he says these words, Acts 20, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task. Church, this needs to be us. I'm going to tell you, this needs to be every one of us. Don't worry about how you started. Don't worry about what you did yesterday. But I consider my life worth nothing, a failure, if I don't finish strong. 
That's what he's saying. If only I might finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Finishing the race, finishing it well. That's my prayer for myself when I pray daily. I've got this idea that I, it doesn't matter how old I am or what the circumstances are, I want to be that guy. You see these, these racers, these runners that in the Olympics or whatever the games are, and they're running and they do that photo finish and all of them are like this nose thing. That's what I want to be. I want to be doing that guy. I want to be that guy who's leaning so far that you're about to fall down because you're leaning into the finish line. Church, that's, that's what Solomon failed at. Solomon faded out as he neared the finish line. And I need to say something. I'm watching many people in the church exactly the same thing. I see it. They fade out when the finish line is so close. What? And what, what got Solomon? Distracted by the pleasures of this world. Solomon was enticed into the idolatry of his day, led away by the love of godless women. I find our redeeming, uh, one redeeming scripture written by Solomon as he neared his finish line. And this will be the close of this particular chapter. It's Ecclesiastes 12, 12. And, and by the way, Solomon in this context, he, he realizes the search of truth and God is endless. It's infinite. Listen to what he says. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. He's writing books. He's trying to display what God's wisdom has meant in his life at this stage of his life. And he's found out that it's endless. It's endless. You can't, you can't never get to where God's at. You can't do it. It's too big. Of making many books, there is no end. Remember how John, you know how the, the, the Apostle John finishes the Gospel of John? I'm rough quoting it. He said, I suppose if everything Jesus did was written, there would be, you, the world could not contain the books. Solomon came to the same conclusion that John did. It's too big. It's too big. He's too big. He's too far outreaching. So he says, of making many books, there's no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. This is the wisest guy in the world. Fear God and keep his commandments. Man, that's good counsel. Be afraid. And keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Fear God and obey the covenant. Here we go. Fear God and obey the covenant. Church, that specific application to the new covenant, not excluding the Old Testament, the new covenant. Fear God, obey the covenant. All right, let's jump to the next chapter. The kingdom torn in two. Now understand something. When David and Solomon and Saul, when they have the kingdom, they've got all of it. It's 12, 12 tribes. They got it all. They're, they're a united kingdom, right? Something's about to change. And I'm going to tell you, listen carefully. It's because of Solomon that it changes. This loving foreign women and disobeying the covenant of God about idolatry and apostasy. 
it's going to be a generational curse that's going to flow all the way through the rest of the kingdom. Here we go. In the Gettysburg Address, November 19th, 1863, Abraham Lincoln said, Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to this proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war. Notice the word. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are, met on a great, we are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that the nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. Now that's the end of Abraham Lincoln's address. Understand that the American Civil War pitted brother against brother sister against sister. In the Civil War, everyone who dies is in the same nation. In a sense, they're from the same family. Now, let me take it one step further. If you study Israel and read the Old Testament, the battle of Israel in the divided kingdom became the battle of the North and the South. And the Civil War in America became the battle of the North and the South. Interesting, isn't it? Chapter 14 of the story, which we're going through in 13 weeks, captures the painful and heart-wrenching account of a divided nation, God's people, Israel. The American Civil War spanned, are you ready? Four years. Israel's Civil War lasted over 200 years. In America, the war ended with a united nation over time. In Israel, the two factions never united again. Understand that. And what was the source? What was the source? Solomon. So how did Israel's civil war begin? What happened that would divide this blessed family of Abraham? This family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and I hope you understand that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob's name was changed by God to Israel. So uh, Jacob, who, whose name now is Israel, has 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes. And now the nation which was 12 tribes when David was king, when Solomon was king, is going to be cut. Civil war. Idolatry and apostasy. The more I study the Bible, the more it jumps out at me. At the base of all rebellion is idolatry. What, what was... I'll get in trouble with that one. I better back off. What got Solomon in trouble wasn't just women. It was the women took his heart away from God and it put it on their God, to please the women. To please the women, his heart was drawn from Yahweh to Molech. It wasn't just the women, but that's what got him. That's the tool that God, that Satan used to draw his heart away. And I say that because at the base of all rebellion is idolatry. 
to love something or someone other than the one true God. Do you think it's coincidence that the first two commandments are about idolatry? That that's number one and number two? Because it's the, it's the root of, of all rebellious hearts. King Solomon started well, but he finished poorly as he followed his lust for foreign women to lead into the deadly trap of idolatry and apostasy. So why do I say apostasy? Everybody gets the idolatry because he was worshiping Moloch. So what's the apostasy? God's word said, don't. Don't do it. So, so that's apostasy. To take that which you once believed and no longer obey or believe it and step away from it. It's apostasy to step away from the truth. First Kings 11 now. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And one of those times he offers him anything he wants. And yet his heart is still drawn away. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, there's the apostasy, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. His name is Jeroboam. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hands of your son. His name is Rehoboam. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. What kept the southern kingdom in place? David, who God loved, and Jerusalem itself. For the sake of David and for the sake of the city that bears my name. Two things. The nation of Israel, the once great family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was going to enter into a civil war, all because of idolatry and apostasy. God will not tolerate unfaithfulness. They were supposed to be in a covenant relationship, and they break the covenant. 1 Kings eleven forty three. Then he, Solomon, rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son succeeded him as king. Now, Solomon already knows what's about to happen. I'm going to, I'm going to, of course, Solomon's dead now, but but they knew in advance, that's my point. They knew in advance that he's, the, the civil war's coming. They knew it. So Rehoboam, and I carefully put in there, at least it seems, from a lower story perspective, he has an opportunity to avoid a civil war. He's the son of Solomon, okay? He's got the whole kingdom. When Rehoboam comes on the scene, he's got everything, okay? Everything. All 12 tribes. He has an opportunity to avoid a civil war and hold the nation of Israel together if, if he makes a good choice, or so it seems. But actually, from the upper story, it looks like God had already determined he's going to tear it apart anyway. 1 Kings 12, verse 1. Rehoboam goes, went to Shechem. For all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. Now that's 12 tribes. Okay, Rehoboam, son of Solomon. He's going to Shechem. 
All Israel's there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, there's the other guy. By the way, I don't have time to get into all that. God has already told him, I'm going to give 10 of the tribes to you. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they went, excuse me, so they sent for Jeroboam. And he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam. So you've got the two Boam brothers. The, they're not brothers. I shouldn't say that. You got Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And now they're both together. And listen, and they go, so Jeroboam, he is not of any royal lineage. He's a servant who God has elevated. And he goes to Rehoboam, who's royalty. He's in the seat of David. He's Solomon's son. So they go to Rehoboam and say to him, your father put a heavy yoke on us. Solomon put a heavy yoke on us. But now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. If you just read that, you would think there was a chance to save the kingdom without civil war. Just what? Lighten the yoke. Rehoboam answered, okay? He's the son of Solomon. I know I get confused with Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Go away for three days and then come back. So the people go away. So there's a chance that we'll all get along. We'll anoint Rehoboam as the king and what? Twelve tribes will stay together, right? Is Rehoboam really in charge of this moment? Or does God in advance know his heart is unstoppable? I don't know. But anyway, it's interesting. Verse 6. Then King Rehoboam, he's got all 12, right? And he's even got Jeroboam there acting like he's ready to submit. King Rehoboam consulted the elders. Now, don't read over that. He consults first the old guys. It's always a good idea to consult the old guys. Is anybody listening? Stay away from the young guys. They're stupid. Okay? I'm going to prove it to you. Stay away from the young guys. So King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer the people? What's the, what are you, what's the question? Lighten the yoke? We'll all stay together. Be one family. They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. Those are some wise old dudes. They are. But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the old guys. The elders gave him and consulted the young men. Uh, he's lost. This is not going to work. Who had grown up with him. That's the people that tell you what you want to hear, right? He consulted the young men who he'd grown up with and were serving him. And he said to them, what's your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us and we'll all be one big happy family. The young men who had grown up with him replied, tell these people who have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Uh-oh. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. Heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. How do you think that's going over? 
That does it. That's all it takes for Jeroboam and the ten northern tribes to say what? We're out of here. We're out of here. Listen to how they describe their decision to depart from the family, the family of Israel. Verse 16, when all Israel saw the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, what share do we have in David? This is so important. What share do we have in David? What share, what, what part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel, look after your own house, David. So the Israelites, the ten tribes, went home. The battle of the north and the south begins. David was from the tribe of Judah, one of the twelve sons of Jacob. And what did they say? What share do we have in the family now? The tribes of Judah and Benjamin will now be left alone in Jerusalem, and they'll be called from this point forward Judah. The other ten tribes will return home to form their own nation under Jeroboam called Israel. The other ten, excuse me, Judah's capital will be Jerusalem, the place of the holy temple. Israel, the ten northern tribes' capital will be what? Samaria. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, was left with the smaller of the two kingdoms, and he doesn't want to settle for that. He's got young, smart aleck advisors who's not going to be happy with him only having two out of the twelve tribes, right? So he's going to start a war. He's going to fight against their brothers and regain the entire kingdom. At least that's what he thought. And God steps in and says, no, you won't. Verse 21. When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered the whole house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Why, why is he doing this? Because the ten northern tribes have left him, and they're following Jeroboam. So he, he, he mustered the whole house of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 fighting men to make war against the house of Israel and to regain the kingdom from Rehoboam, the son of four, not from, four Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, to the whole house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people. This is what the Lord says. Do not go up and fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. What, what's his doing? He tore the nation away from Solomon. This is my doing. You will not undo this. So they obeyed the word of the Lord, went home as the Lord had ordered. Now, here's the first problem. In fact, if you don't study it carefully, you're going to miss this very important shadow of future messianic glory. This is the first problem. How are the people of, the, of Israel, the northern kingdom, going to worship the God in the temple of God, which is located in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom? Now, you might say, well, I don't know why is that a big deal. Because the covenant, the law, required that they offer their offerings in Jerusalem at the temple only, only, only. You ever read the scripture where he, one of the ways God chastises Israel is you make sacrifices on every hill. 
You keep seeing that throughout the Old Testament. You think, well, why, why is that a problem? Because they weren't supposed to make sacrifices on every hill. They were supposed to make sacrifices in only specified places that God had ordained. And that place is Jerusalem. But now they're divided. How are those guys up north going to come down to the enemy camp and worship in the temple? They got a big problem. 1 Kings 12, 26. Jeroboam, he's the northern guy, okay? He thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. What was the issue that he was afraid of? If they keep going down to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices and worship God, they won't need me, right? They'll get rid of me. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. I preached on this several weeks ago. He, so what's his big idea? He's more stupid than Rehoboam down in the south. So what's he going to do? He's going to make two golden calves. He said to the people, it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, and the other he set up in Dan. You know what? If you look at the geography, he put it on both ends of his kingdom. So where you don't have to go to Jerusalem, I've got you someplace right up here. You can do it. Golden calves, right? And this thing became a sin. The people went even as far as Dan to worship the one there. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. Do you get the second point? Not only did he make golden calves, which is just pagan idolatry, going back to Egypt <laughs> idolatry. What else did he do? He didn't have any priest. He don't, he don't have the temple. He don't have the priesthood. What's he going to do? So he starts appointing his own priests. Well, the law says you can't appoint priests who aren't in the family of Levi. So he's messing everything up. It will be easier to worship some local golden calves than travel to Jerusalem. Idolatry and apostasy. A priesthood that is not from Levi. Does God just turn them over to their idolatry and sin? No, no. Chapter 13. Here's the point. How's God going to respond to this? Really, that's the point. God cut the nation in two. He did it. And why did he do it? Why did he do it? Idolatry and apostasy. So Jeroboam, go up here to the north. He gives him a chance. If you'll remember that series I did, he gave a, a no-name, no-bloodline Jeroboam an opportunity to have a kingdom equivalent to David. And what does he do? What's the first thing he does? Idolatry and apostasy. He makes golden calves and abandons the law and appoints priests who aren't Levites. So what's God going to do? Here we go. By the word of the Lord, a man of God, came from Judah to Bethel, that's where he was at, as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. He's at the golden calf, okay? He cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord, O altar, O altar. This is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. If you remember that series, I believe I'm going off the cuff, 360 years later, Josiah will be born. But this prophet is announcing it. 
A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David down in the southern kingdom. On you, altar, he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who now make offerings here. And human bones will be burned on you, altar. That same day, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. When King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he was mad, okay? He's mad. Who would defy the king of the northern kingdom of Israel? He stretched out his hand from the altar at the man of God and says, seize him. But the hand he stretched out toward the man shriveled up so that he could not pull his hand back. Also, the altar was split apart and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God, the word of the Lord. Then the king said to the man of God, I bet you at this point his attitude has changed. Intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me. That my hand, it's gone from seize him to pray for me. Pray for me that my hand may be restored. So the man of God interceded with the Lord and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. So here's the question. That shot over the bow, did it change Jeroboam? No. No. He's a no bloodline, no name servant appointed by God. He's a picture of the Gentile kingdoms of the future. No bloodline. No bloodline. Gentiles. Offered a kingdom equivalent to David's. A place in the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But did he accept it? No. He didn't. And because of his idolatry and apostasy against God, the Lord dealt severely with his entire family. Verse 33. Even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways, but once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. He's breaking the law of Moses. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to his downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. From the face of the earth, he is removed. Did all this change God's plan and covenant with Abraham? No. This is important. Did, did, this, did God just look at these people, Solomon and now Jeroboam, and say, there's no hope for you guys. There's no hope. What if in the middle of this, he was always, he always had a plan. He always had a plan. He always had a plan. And what if every scene of this scripture, if you'll look for it, is revealing the plan? Did all this change God's plan to do whatever it takes to get us back? No. There's one bright spot in chapter 14 of the story. His name is Asa. Chapter 15, verse 9. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, okay, he's the king up in the north that's got the golden calves. 
In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Asa, king of Israel, excuse me, Asa became the king of Judah. Now, Asa's going to now become the king down in the south. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 41 years. They obviously didn't have term limits there either. His grandmother's name, I find this story amazing. His grandmother's name was Makkah, daughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. He expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols that his fathers had made. And he even deposed his grandmother. Oh, my. You know, can you imagine deposing your grandmother? How would that conversation begin? He deposed his grandmother, Makah, from her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive Asherah pole. Grandma, you're out of here. <laughs> and you know what? He became a hero. Asa cut the pole down and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. He brought into the temple of the Lord the silver and gold articles that he and his father had dedicated. What did we learn today? Idolatry and apostasy are unfaithfulness. And God does not tolerate it then, and he will not tolerate it today. And there's just a scripture that I want to end up with tonight. It's Mark 8, 20, 38, and it's in the New Testament when Jesus makes a definitive announcement of his position. You ready? A definitive announcement of his position. If anyone is ashamed of me, and I'm going to do this in my words. Apostasy is to step away from these words. It's what wrecked Solomon. It's what wrecked Jeroboam. It's what brought down the two nations. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, what's going to happen? What's he going to do? What are you going to do? The Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes into his Father's glory with his holy angels. What do you think that's going to look like? I will give you two scenes as we wrap it up. Two scenes. We're all going to stand before God one day. The new covenant says that if the blood of Christ covers Terry Cooper when I stand before God, Jesus, my intercessor, will look at the Father and say, He's with me. He's with me. He's one of mine. He is not ashamed of the name and he is not ashamed of the word. He's mine. And the Father welcomes because Jesus and I are brothers. We're in the same family. He's my father. If, if, if you got the same father, you got to be brothers, right? But there's another scene. And this person also, just like the rest of us, will stand in front of God. But this person, from Jesus' perspective, he was ashamed of the name and he was ashamed of the word. He was ashamed. He knew about it. He just was ashamed of it. It, it wasn't 
foremost in his life. And the idea is what? I I don't have to make it up. Jesus says that I'm going to be ashamed of you. So rather than saying to the Father, this one's with me, my sacrifice is sufficient for him because because he's not ashamed of me. I'm not ashamed of him. But this guy, he lived his whole life ashamed of me. He didn't want to mention my name, and he sure didn't want any part of my word. Idolatry and apostasy. It just took a different flavor. It's the same thing. It's no different than Jeroboam and the golden calves. It's no different than Solomon and the multiple wives. It's the same thing. It's no difference. But somehow people think that in the church age, the end will be different. But you made that up. It's not different. Jesus' teaching is clear. If we're ashamed of him now, he'll be ashamed of us then. That's why the Apostle Paul says what? Romans chapter 1, I believe, says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who are being saved, for the Jew first, but also for the Gentile. I'm not ashamed. He's life. Church, his name and his word. Church at Philadelphia and Revelation. Because you did not deny my name and you never denied my word, I will protect you from the time of testing that's going to come upon the whole earth. Because you held to the name, you held to the word. Father, thank you for this name, Jesus. Thank you for the word. Thank you for the covenant of blood. And I pray, Father, that we would never be ashamed of the one who died for us. We would never be ashamed of the word that has set us free from the bondage of sin and death. Forgive us, Lord. Have mercy upon your church. Awaken your bride. Awaken your bride. Awaken your bride. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.